Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted by the first of each month. The content of the podcasts is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Neither Attracted Nor Repelled, The Value of Cultivating Equanimity on the Path. The talk was given by Nahama Greenwald on September 9, 2017, in Prescott, Arizona. Nahama is a physical therapist, musician, writer, and one of the editors of Sahaja Magazine a publication on Western vowel practice. She was a member of the blues band, Shri, which performed Western vowel music, touring Europe with them in the summers for 17 years. Nahama Greenwald. I'm really happy to see each of you here, and I appreciate you coming. And I hope that you find something useful from the, um, the talk this evening. And I would invite you to um, participate either with a comment or a question. Um, just raise your hand and I would be happy to um, you know, listen to what you have to say. Okay, sometimes things get, um, certain things get generated from um, your questions and your, and your comments. You know, I can't think of everything you know, to say, so you might really have something to add. So I'm just, no pressure, just feel free, okay, to participate. So <clears throat> the title of the talk is Neither Attracted Nor Repelled, The Value of Cultivating Equanimity on the Path. And I wanted to begin by saying that um, it's unquestionable to me that there is value in having equanimity on the spiritual path. But we may not all consider ourselves to be formally on path. Um, I think a lot of people actually don't. However, we're all in the same boat because we are all, every single one of us, we are pilgrims on the path of life. And we are subject, we all go through the same things. We may express it differently. The circumstance may vary from person to person, but we all are subject to the same uncertainties, fluctuations, um, things can change, come out of left field. We're all at the effect of um, what attracts us and repels us, what we grasp for and what we push away from us. It's, it's, it's in our conditioning. So we, because we all go through that, whether we consider ourselves to be on a path or not, I think there's, there is most definitely value in, in having equanimity. And if that's not clear, hopefully by the end of the evening it will be clear. But I want to take it a step further and say that not only is there value, but I think it's imperative. I think it's absolutely imperative to have equanimity because not only are we at the effect of um, 
experiences and circumstances and things changing and things being in flux, but we live in a world that is so troubled and so turbulent and things are so dire in so many ways. And the forces of darkness are, are really, there are always forces of light, but the forces of darkness are really magnified at this time and everything is very destabilized. So if we want to be able to hold our seat with dignity and poise in the world, if we want to have some measure of internal stability as things are um, manifesting as they are, it is most important to have equanimity. There's an Ayurvedic doctor and um, Jyotish or Indian astrologer named Robert Svoboda. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. But he, so he's an astrologer, an Indian astrologer. And according to Indian astrology, we are living in the age of Rahu. And Rahu is one of the nine grahas or nine planets. And Rahu is represented as a big giant head with no body. So Rahu is symbolic of greed and insatiability. And that's what's ruling our world. And is that not true? You know, there is tremendous insatiability and greed everywhere we turn. So for our own personal um, harmony, composure, um, peace of mind, and for a way of being in the world and dealing with the world and having like an anchor of sanity and stability, I think equanimity is essential. The Buddha said that in degenerative times that genuine spiritual teachings have greater effectiveness. They're more effective. There's greater urgency, there's greater effectiveness. So in a way, you know, with things being as troubled and turbulent as they are, it's really, this is an, an optimal time to find genuine spiritual teachings to read genuine spiritual teachings, to listen to them, and to practice them. And equanimity is a principle, it's a practice that we see in the yogic tradition, we see it in the Hindu tantric tradition, we see it in the Buddhist tradition. It's in many, many different traditions, it's just called different things. And there was um, a Zen teacher that once said, um, it was something like, Good situation, bad situation. Bad situation, good situation. Meaning that things that look bad, there may be something good that comes out of it because from the standpoint of practice, when things are in the state that they're in, in degenerative times, like in the times that we live in, it's, we may even say it's auspicious, it's a fertile time. It's a very fertile time for practice, for practicing the Dharma. And equanimity is one of those principles that's really woven into the Dharma. It's woven into um, genuine spiritual teachings of many different traditions. And if we look at the things that occur 
in our everyday, ordinary lives, because that's what we want to be looking at. We don't just want to consider these principles in some kind of abstract or, um, or even general or esoteric way. We really want to get down into the nitty-gritty aspect of our daily lives. And if we look at all of the things that happen to us on a daily basis, there are many things that act as a gauge or as a mirror to show us where we're at with how much equanimity we have. How little equanimity do we have? How easily is our equanimity disturbed? Like, for example, we're driving in traffic. Somebody cuts us off. Or let's say, like something that happened to me the other day, there's this monstrous, this big, monstrous, jacked-up truck that's like tailgating me, even though I'm going you know, over the speed limit. It's like right on my back bumper. So it's like, how do, what happens to us when our equanimity can potentially be disturbed? Because, you know, when things are going well, we hit the green lights, we're not sick, you know, we're, we have enough food to eat, we're not in the path of a hurricane. You know, my, my 83-year-old mother is right in the path of the hurricane, and she's not evacuating because she lives on the second floor. So she's like, you know, she's, she's determined to just stay there. She's got her windows, all the things that you're supposed to do. But, you know, we're not, so we're not in the path of a hurricane or an earthquake. It's really easy to say, wow, I really have equanimity. You know, I'm, I'm doing a really good job with that, you know. I'm proud of myself. But what happens when things aren't going our way? Like traffic. Let's say somebody insults us, doesn't give us the acknowledgement that we want to have, that we would like to have from them. How do we do with that? How do we do when we get sick and we have to stay in bed? We can't do the things that we normally do. How do we do when we go through a health crisis? I was, um, I was working on this talk about a week ago and I was sitting um, at the dining room table at our house and we have this open floor plan. So it's like the dining room, living room and kitchen. They're all, it's all one space. I'm writing at the dining room table, a fly comes out of nowhere and gets right up in my face. You know, it's buzzing around my eyes, it's buzzing in my ear. I'm shooing the fly away, keep writing. Fly goes away, fly comes back, shoo the fly away. Fly goes away, fly comes back. We're playing this little game back and forth. I was getting really annoyed. And finally, I just started yelling. Nobody was home. It was just me. But I'll share this with you. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to the fly, look, you've got the whole friggin' space to fly around. And why do you have to be here in my face? And I'm, you know, I'm going, oh, I can put that in my talk. Because it's about equanimity. And look at what's happening to me. It's a little tiny fly. It doesn't take much to set us off. Really. So life is all of the, the, the daily occurrences, circumstances, actions, events. Let us know very clearly 
where we stand with how much equanimity we have. So it's our, it's our mirror, it's our gauge, and it's our training ground. That's the way we practice with equanimity. That's the way we practice with not being attracted or repelled is through these little, it doesn't have to be some big dramatic thing. It can be, I'm like confessing, it was a fly. And I was really, I was annoyed. I was really annoyed. What about just dealing with someone, you know, that we work with that annoys us, highly annoys us? How much equanimity do we have? You know, do we fly off the handle? Do we look the other way and not relate to them? Like, how do we do? So that's really what we want to be looking at in our daily lives. When we talk about not being attracted or repelled, we are always dealing with our conditioning and our conditioned habits. Because like I was saying before, we are all in the same boat. We all want to push away what we don't like, what doesn't feel good, what hurts, what's painful, what doesn't fit in our comfort zone, and we want to grasp for what we're attracted to, what feels good. Oh, somebody just praised me and told me what a good job I did on this talk. You know, it's like, oh, I like that. You know, we we all do that. So we are always dealing, we're dealing with our our cultural conditioning, our, our human you know, primate conditioning, our psychological conditioning, our survival strategies, you know, we get into fight or flight. So we're always, we're always up against that. So it requires some effort. So we don't just go with the flow of our conditioning. So it's something important to keep in mind. And when we talk about um, what attracts us and what repels us, We are talking about being at the effect of these polarities because, you know, everybody in this room, we live in duality. If we lived in non-duality, like the the great, you know, spiritual masters talk about, if we lived in that state, we wouldn't have to be dealing with this because we would be in a state of union with reality, with the divine. You know, we wouldn't be at the effect of the push and pull of these opposites and these polarities, but we live in duality. So we are having to deal with the push and pull of the um, polarities and opposites, sorrow, joy, pleasure, pain, praise, insult, success, failure, health, sickness. And we tend to be at either end of the polarity, like with our likes and our dislikes, for example. I like it. I really don't like it. This feels good. This is really painful. So we're kind of like, you know, like this from one end. So here are these opposites, these polarities, what attracts us, what repels us, our desires, our aversions. But then what about all this space in the middle here? What about what's between them? So the mind tends to go with either or. It's either this or it's that. It's either ugly or it's beautiful. It's either good or it's bad. That's, you know, generally not, there are always exceptions. It's, it's 
The things that I'm saying is to, it's because I'm trying to illustrate a, a, a principle. So there's all this space in the middle and vast space. And that's where equanimity lies. What attracts us, what repels us, equanimity. And I call that the sweet spot. Or we could call it the soft spot. We could call it the vulnerable spot. Because that's the place that we're in before the mind hardens into um, negativity, fixation, and grasping. So it's that softer, more vulnerable space between these opposites, between what attracts us and repels us. And we're very much identified with what we like and what we don't like, what we desire, what we, you know, push away from us. Our identification is sunk into it. Our reference points are fixed. It's here and it's here. And if we really start to look at it, we will see that it really shapes our um, perception of ourselves, our self-expression, our perception of others, our worldview. I like our president. I don't like our president. You know, I really like this person. I can't stand this person. We're always going, if we, if we look at ourselves, we will see that we spend a lot of time thinking about it. We spend a lot of time talking about it. Because there's a lot of passion and drama in it. What we're attracted to and what repels us. We tend to have strong fixation, strong reactivity to it. If we, if we really look at ourselves... And that's where they are, and this is where equanimity lies here. So it shapes our um, perception of ourselves, our definitions of ourselves. It's, it's, it's in a lot of our conversations. It's in, it's in our thinking. I don't know about your thinking, but it's in a lot. Sometimes when I just sit down, like if I'm meditating or something, I listen to my, I'm like paying attention to my thoughts, and it's like there I am going on with some reactivity to something, something I just am either wanting to pull towards me or push away from me. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Okay. And the thing about that is that we, this, there's familiarity in that, you know? It's familiar to us. There's stability in it. There's solidity in it. It's like, it, again, it's part of what we identify with. We identify with either here or here, not necessarily uh, of that space in the, in the middle between them. That's the space of equanimity. But we're also stuck there. Our reference points are fixated there. And so... Because of that, we are fixed and identified with it. And when we begin to move in the direction of having equanimity, not only is there greater like internal harmony and balance, but there is greater freedom. It's very freeing because we are freed up from the fixation of our reference points 
of what attracts us. We're not held down by it. We're not anchored down to it anymore. And I think that maybe this will come a little bit clearer um, if it's not clear now. And, you know, it's like we may say, if we're thinking about, well, equanimity would be something good to have in life. But we may be tempted to say, well, it sounds so boring. It's so flat and neutral and uninteresting and um, like, like a big gray zone. And there's no drama and there's no passion in it. You know, just kind of flat. We may be tempted to think that. It's not like that, though, because when we are talking about being neither attracted nor repelled, when we are talking about having equanimity, it's never about repression. It's never about rejection. It's never about denial. It's not like something comes up for us and we feel ourselves going into that grasping or pushing away. Oh, better, better, you know, keep it down here because I'm trying to have equanimity. We allow everything to be there that comes up for us. It's never, we're never rejecting, we're never repressing anything. It's a very, very important point. Okay, because then it's not a real, genuine practice of equanimity. Then it just gets into repression, you know, and trying to, to keep something down, to, to make something good so that you feel okay about it. And that's not what this, this practice is about. And if we are moving in the direction of having equanimity, then we want to take a look at what attracts us and repels us. We want to take a look at our desires and aversions because we may think, oh, I'm really choosing this. I'm really choosing to feel this way. I'm really choosing to, you know, um, grasp for this. I'm really choosing to push this away. But if we look deeper, we will see that it's oftentimes so knee-jerk mechanical, what we like and what we don't like. It's very mechanical for all of us. It's based on our conditioning. It's based on our past history. It's based on our, not just our, our personal or our family condition, our cultural conditioning. It's based on our psychology. So if we want to have equanimity, again, instead of repressing and rejecting, we want to bring what our desires and our aversions are, what attracts us and repels us, we want to bring it up into a conscious, more of a conscious um, awareness. We want to be more aware of it. We want to get to know ourselves. What do I desire? What, what is it that, that I'm repelled from? What is it that attracts us? We want to take it from the more knee-jerk, unconscious, mechanical realm and have a more conscious and more intimate relationship of self-awareness so that we actually get to know, we taste more consciously what we like, what we don't like. That's part of it because, again, we don't want to repress anything. We want to bring everything up into some kind of conscious relationship to it. Here's a quote from Chogyam Trungpa. Have you heard of him? He's a, um, he's a, a Tibetan uh, 
Tibetan teacher, came over from Tibet, um, lived in America, set up uh, centers in Nova Scotia and America, and um, he's, he died in the uh, 1980s. But he had a lot of good things to say. So this is a quote from him. He uses the word equilibrium, but actually um, equilibrium and equanimity are the same thing. So this is what Chagim Trumpa says. It should be quite clear that equilibrium does not mean becoming a jellyfish or an even-tempered ape. In this case, in the case of having equanimity, you have command of the whole world. You have tremendous confidence in dealing with your world. Therefore, you don't have to push anything either positively or negatively. You don't have to dwell on anything or exaggerate anything. So he's describing this internal state of what it means to have equilibrium. And the key thing that he is saying is that we don't push anything. We allow it to be, there's positive and negative, but we're not pushing it. We're not pushing it towards the positive. We're not pushing it towards the negative. You don't have to dwell on anything or exaggerate anything. You don't have to obsessively fixate on something. You don't have to grasp for something. You will you allow it to be there. And what he is saying is that when we do this, we come to live in a bigger world. We're in a bigger world. And, and he says, and I, I would believe him because he knew about this. He was a realized being that we have, he says, we have command of the whole world. There's tremendous confidence because we are not fixated in these reference points of what attract, what attracts us and repels us. We're not allowing ourselves to move into these fluctuations because they're constant. They happen all the time. And when we do this, there's a kind of freedom and the world opens up to us in, in a much bigger way. And maybe some of you have had that experience, you know, where you have, have experienced being able to have an equanimity in a situation maybe that was challenging, and you experience a kind of freedom and expansiveness, perhaps. Um, so as I was saying, equanimity is um, written about and spoken about in all these different traditions, including the yoga tradition. And Swami Shivananda is a, uh, is, he's like a, a Hindu yoga master that spoke about equanimity. And he said that equanimity was about remaining cheerful in adverse conditions. That's kind of not so easy. It's easy to remain cheerful when things are going our way. But what happens when we're in adverse conditions, whatever those conditions are, you know? So how can we remain cheerful? He also says it's having the, uh, the forbearance and the presence of mind to bear insult and injury. So, and I think when he's talking about injury, he's not talking about if somebody like beats us up or something like that, but more of like emotional, psychological injury. So he's talking about 
that equanimity is having a balanced response whether someone is whether there's success failure pleasure pain whether somebody is praising us or insulting us and whether we're eating a gourmet meal with a glass of wine or we're eating boiled potatoes and water Really, that's what it comes down to. How much equanimity do we have when we're eating really simple food? And I can, I can testify to this because I spent, I was in a band for almost 17 years. And we were on the road every summer in Europe. And it's, you know, it's one thing when you're in your own kitchen and you cook what you want. You have complete control over your environment. But when you're traveling in all these different countries... You don't know what people are going to serve you. And I had some really bad meals. And I was like writing this. I was remembering that there was one. I think we were in this rural area somewhere. And um, we had our dinner was uh, Coca-Cola, beer, um, waterlogged vegetables, and overcooked potatoes and a salt shaker. That was the whole meal. I'm not kidding. That was it. And no dessert. No bread. You know? And that's what we had. So how much equanimity do we have when we're faced with a situation like that? And I have to say we did quite well. There was a little bit of grumbling, you know, afterwards. But, you know, the practice is you eat what's served to you and then thank the people. I mean, it wasn't like we had food poisoning. It wasn't like, you know, our our health was in danger. But there was a way of just, that's what they made. Maybe they cooked it. Maybe that's how they cook all their food in this village, perhaps. But, you know, thank you. Thank you for the food. Thank you for making the food. That's a way of having equanimity. Would we have preferred something else? Yes, probably. But that's what we were served, and it was better than not having any food at all. So how much equanimity do we have in a situation like that? So we're talking about having this particular response to situations rather than a response that's kind of born out of reactivity and emotion. So we learn how to ride the waves of our experience without getting tangled up in reaction and reactivity before the mind hardens into fixation and negativity. This is a definition I found of equanimity when I was uh, looking. I always look for, anytime I do a talk, I take the title and I look up the keywords in the dictionary. It's just like something I do. So this is one definition of equanimity. Being in pure awareness, our true nature, that which is unchanging in all circumstances. So the circumstances of our outer lives and our outer environment do not dictate our inner state. So we don't get 
when we had the waterlogged vegetables and the and the boiled potatoes, we don't get like bent out of shape and like run over to the cook and say, you know, how could you make us make us something else? We are hungry. We've been on the road all day. We have to play for three hours. It's like there's this inner poise because it doesn't that inner state doesn't change with the fluctuation of external circumstances. So it's our own, I, I call it the sweet spot, but it's our own sanctuary. It's like an, an internal sanctuary to have that. Otherwise, God, we can be really miserable, I think. That's, that's my experience of my own um, lack of equanimity. And when we can do that, yes, there's more freedom, there's more composure, and there's radical acceptance so what does that mean? What is, what is radical acceptance? What's not radical acceptance is when is conditional acceptance. So we accept what we like, what feels good. This was a really good meal. I liked it. And we don't accept what we don't like. Waterlogged vegetables and boiled potatoes and one salt shaker for nine people. You know, it's like... So our acceptance is conditional based on our grasping and our pushing away. So that's, con- that's not radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is unconditional acceptance. It's when we accept it all. We accept the waterlogged vegetables and potatoes. We accept the gourmet meal. We accept everything. We accept the joy. We accept the sorrow. We accept it all whether we like it or not. And the analogy that's used is like a banquet. I've I've read this before, it's like a banquet and we're at this banquet and we open the door and we invite everyone in. Being, we invite our joy, we invite our sorrow, we invite um, failure, we invite success, we invite illness, we invite health, you know, we in, invite what we perceive as being ugly, we invite beauty. So we open the door and we let all of it, we let all of these things sit at the banquet table with us. And that's what radical acceptance is. That's what, it's a tall order. It's not like something we can just do overnight like that, but it's something that can happen over a lifetime of practice with consistency. And that sounds pretty good to me. I would like to be able to do that. I would like to be able to invite everyone to my banquet, to invite all of these different polarities, opposites, instead of going no to this, yes to this, which is all based on the conditional. Does that make sense? Well, what about situations that are <clears throat> toxic? I mean, is there room to make um, choices to not be around certain things because they're not good for you? There's always discrimination. Always. So we, it's not, we're not being stupid about it. You know what I mean? We're not being just like, oh, yeah, just open the door. Anybody... There's always, and that's a good point, because there's always discrimination. You know what I mean? We're using discrimination in everything. 
So there may be a situation that we don't want to open the door to, you know, uh, the door of our of our banquet room, because it is toxic and it really detracts us from our true aim and purpose, you know, of why we're here and what we're doing. So I would say that there are situations that we wouldn't, but still, even with the toxic situation, I don't know if you have a specific example, but there's still a way to make use of it, even if it's just by by seeing it and knowing that for ourselves. So there's always a way to make use of anything that happens in our lives. So this is from the, the yoga guy, Swami Shivananda. He was the one that was talking about remaining cheerful in adverse um, circumstances. He says, he makes some good distinctions. He says, when we open to the truth that there is actually very little we can control other than our own reactions to circumstances, we learn to let go. So there's a relationship between equanimity and surrender because we see, I can't control this. And we are able to uh, let go. And when we do that, it already puts us more in a place of equanimity. And when we do have equanimity, we're in a place where it's easier to, it, it lends itself to uh, being able to surrender to what we can. It works both ways to what we can control. So there's, there's an element of, of surrender because there's a lot of things we can't control, like the hurricanes and the earthquakes and everything, all the intensity that's going on right now everywhere. Um, he also talks about dealing with the, um, he calls it, let's see, what's the word that he used? The, the non-virtuous deeds of others. He says that when we are dealing with the non-virtuous deeds of others, there are a lot of those in the world. But when we are looking at the non-virtuous, when we are dealing with the non-virtuous deeds of others, when we have equanimity, we have just a little bit more spaciousness, a little bit more empathy to see that those that cause suffering to others are themselves really suffering also. And we can just, we have the eyes to see the suffering of those that cause suffering to others. We're not getting into politics, okay? We're not going there, but just in general, and I think for us, too, you know, our own non-virtuous deeds, we all have those, right? And when we have equanimity, we're able to have compassion for maybe the suffering that we were going through that calls out to, to lash out at someone else, like when we're jealous of someone, you know, when we're envious of someone when we're competitive with someone, you know, it could be in any number of things, anything that would cause us to act in, in what he calls a, a non-virtuous way. He also says that equanimity gives you the energy to persist regardless of the outcome because you are connected to the integrity of the effort itself. And I really like this distinction because he's saying that when we are when we want a particular outcome or result, we're like this, most of us. We want it, you know, this is what we want to have happen. And there's a particular kind of grasping that goes on. But when we are resting in that sweet spot of equanimity, then 
we're able to be better aligned just with the in, in the integrity of the effort we're making, regardless of what the results are. Does that does that make sense to you? So this is just a distinction, a distinction that he's making. Anybody have any uh, before I move on to something else? Questions, comments, disagreements. Yeah, to me it just seems uh, like what you're describing is like when I encounter someone that's like a really like intense meditator and then they're just very like, they'll think about what they're going to say before they say it, just like intentional with like how they respond to people and not like letting people like take advantage of them or like put themselves in like toxic, toxic situations, like mm-hmm. just like being um, just like very aware of like any kind of actions or words that you put out there that could affect other people. So, so, so you're saying that that's that would be an example of equanimity, just like someone yeah. that has a lot of equanimity. It's just like, because like kind of trying to find that distinction between like just being very passive and like disconnected and like having equanimity. Because exactly. I think it's really, like, misunderstood like that. Kind of. Good point. That's a that's a really excellent point because somebody could look like they have equanimity, but they're just like completely detached and passive and maybe even fearful or something. So yeah, great, thank you. Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just like on this thing about the waterlogged vegetables and the potatoes. I was so hungry. I mean, I was just, I was so tired. We hadn't got much sleep the night before. I didn't feel like playing, I was in a really bad mood. Um, people in the band were fighting with each other and you know, it's like when we were driving to this, our destination, I was like, oh, can't wait to have dinner because that's what happens when you're on the road. You know, you're you get excited about things like just meals, <laughs> you know, or about having coffee in the morning, you know, or selling a lot of CDs or something like that. And so, you know, it's like I saw the meal and I went, Damn. you know, I was just I was so upset about it. But you you work with it internally. It's not like I was like I saw it. I'm chilled out, I have equanimity, it's good. It wasn't like that at all. I had to work through things. I don't, again, we're not repressing. I didn't repress my disappointment, my anger at the chef for overcooking everything. Like, none of that was going, you know, I wasn't doing any of that. I let myself feel what I was feeling. But you don't necessarily manifest it, you know? So it's like you work with, there's always this balance between what's going on in here, and how you you manage, you integrate it, you digest it, and then what comes out up here. And the thing to do was not like stand up and and be a, you know, a raving maniac about it. It was just to, because really, I was in bad mood. That's why I remember it, because I was particularly, it, it was not a good day. And, and that's what our big meal of the day was. So, you know, it's like, yes, absolutely, there is always, there should always, always be passion. We shouldn't be, it's like Chogyam Trungpa said, we're not being an even-tempered ape. You know, that's not what it's about. There's always room for, um, for passion. It's more about the relationship between how we grasp and how we push away. But there's lots of space for all emotions, for all feelings to to arise in us as they should. 
Um, so something that I was wondering about, like knowing how, knowing when to act on something and knowing what you have control over, and especially like the toxic environments and behaviors that you see in other people, whether it's like a personal relationship or on a larger scale, like problems in your community or in the government, like how do you decide when to, because like you can accept it, but when to do something about it. Like having passion for like activism, for example. Mm -hmm. Like how does that, I, how would you address that? I, I think that equanimity is woven into everything we do. It's part of everything we do, whether it, there's activism or whether there's not activism. It's not like we it's not like we're sitting like this, I have no passion, I'm not doing anything, I just have equanimity. That's that's not what it is. So um, you know, I used to be involved in a lot of um, social activism at a different point in my life. And I felt really called to do that. So I think that we just it's not like there's a the same answer for everybody. You just have to you have to see what's true for you. And in terms of, um, because I think that there's really a time to, it's not the way for everyone, social activism. Other people do it through, you know, through prayer, through uh, singing, through uh, meditation. You know, there's, there's different ways of going about responding to what's happening in the world. Is, is that what you were asking about in terms of the, the government and being... And what was the other thing you said? It was something about um, when to say something to someone else. What was the other part of that? Um, yeah, when to like stand up for yourself or like just trying to de determine when you have enough control or when you have enough power to make a change and whether it's, whether it's worth disrupting that balance in order to improve the situation or improve the problem. Yes, yeah. I think there's a time to really speak up. And because if you're trying to superimpose some kind of balance or equanimity on it, won't be true equanimity. So we have to, it's like, you know, when I was in, when Vijay was talking about being in the van with eight other people, um, there were a lot of things to work out. And to just like, passively just not do anything like there there was a point where that became very toxic to do that and it was really important to speak up and I, I think we have to ask ourselves what's the cost sometimes the cost is really high to not speak up and we have to say something I know that that that's something I mean you know equanimity as a principle is something that you know is relevant and applies to many things but there's it's not like it's one thing covers everything. We have to be looking at, at all these different facets. So sometimes I know for myself that I've really tried to speak up for myself and what's true for me instead of um, being more adaptive. Um, instead of going, well, you know, I'm just going to be really chilled out about this and I'm not going to say anything. And I guess I could fool myself into thinking that that's equanimity, but that's just repression. Now, there is a time to not say something. It's not the same every, every single circumstance. But for me to speak up and to say what was true for me 
in, in a sense, help me to have more just peace of mind with myself. And I think equanimity, in a sense, is about peace of mind. So it's a, it's a really good question, and we could spend a lot of time on it because, you know, it, it really depends on, on the circumstance and it depends on the person. I know that for myself that I have um, spoken up with certain people and spoken up repeatedly more than once and then have gotten to the point where I went, it's just not doing any good. So then I had to work with it in a different way, you know, digest it in a, in a different way. No. It's like riding the waves of your experience without getting tangled up in, in reactivity because once we get into a kind of negativity, kind of reactivity, the mind hardens and fixates around it and then we get, we get stuck in it. You were talking earlier about you can recognize that someone else is lashing out because of their own suffering. And so how do you deal with that person expressing their suffering onto you in a balanced way? Because obviously like that's not healthy for them, it's not healthy for you, mm -hmm. and you want to accept, you can accept that, but it's not productive to just be like, you know, this is, I know why they're doing this and accepting it for what it is. Like you want to make some type of change? Well, that's kind of a tough question because you don't just necessarily, you want to be able to see um, the suffering that that person experiences that would cause someone else's suffering, but you don't necessarily want to be a doormat. You don't want to be a victim of it. So you can say something to them, but you want to use skillful means. If you just, you know, lash out and you're, you're tangled up in that, if you're, if you're hooked and you're reactive, it's going to be really hard to communicate what you're trying to say. But if you can have a kind of equanimity in the face of it, which is, you know, that could be challenging, then you can communicate skillfully what you're trying to say in a way that doesn't drain you, you know, because you're being so reactive to it. So, you know, yes, I think it's important to um, say something. You don't want to necessarily be at the effect of it. But a lot of times it's like it's, it's how you say something to someone. And if you can communicate, and it doesn't mean that that person's going to listen either. You know, it depends on how workable that person is. Does anybody else have anything they want to add to that? Yeah, I was just thinking that, that I've, I have felt tremendously served at times by somebody not reacting back at me when I've, you know, kind of just blah, all over them or whatever. It's like, because it has this, it'll, has this effect of like, like it mirrors you to yourself. I mean, so like if the person I'm, you know, venting something on doesn't actually react in the way that most of us usually do, so it has some kind of equanimity or presence in themselves. Like that's been a tremendous service to me because it's like it's like instantly, even even without anything being said, it's like you almost hear your own voice echoing in the space and see what you kind of go, oh my god, you know, like in a way that you don't if somebody immediately comes at you and then it's just this fight and it, you know. So, so it's 
So, but it is, I agree, it is tricky because there's no formula for it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really important for, too, for, for any one of us to hear or to communicate to someone else, like how, how we feel about what, you know, what's going on. Because yeah. that's, that can be really, that also can be as transformative to really get how you've affected someone, you know, so. I mean, not everything, exactly. And not everything's about equanimity and staying calm. You know, we're, like I was saying in, in the very beginning, I mean, there's everything that we deal with, you know, just in the course of, of being human beings in our lives, not to mention the intensity of the world that we live in. So there's there's all kinds of, this is just one aspect, you know, equanimity is, is one principle that has value, you know, for us um, in, in many ways, but it doesn't like handle everything. It's not like, well, Hey, just have equanimity and you'll be good. You know, we have to we have to get into, you know, Chogyam Trumpa. I was going to talk about this a little bit later on, but you can probably tell that I really like him a lot. He, he inspires me. The Tibetan teacher that I was mentioning that that was talking about um, not being an even-tempered ape. That guy. <laughs> so um, he says that he talks a lot about magic. And he says, you know, we think magic is going to come from this extraordinary realm, um, you know, some esoteric, like amazing, like that's where magic is going to uh, manifest from. But he says the greatest magic that there is, is the magic of working with your own mind. Like that's the greatest magic of working with e your own ego, of disciplining the mind. He goes, that is the greatest magic. And that if we want to experience and to know and live with magic, the only way to do that is through ordinary life. Through the fabric of ordinary life, that is how we encounter magic. Let me, let me just read something that he said about that. I don't know, it's just something that's coming to mind with, with what you're saying. He says, magic is relating with the world on as ordinary a level as possible. The question of magic is completely re relevant to our lives, to our path, to our actual project, practice. Magic is very real, direct, and personal. It is so personal that it becomes excruciating. We are so, because in, in Buddhism, you are dealing with reality. When, when you are dealing with reality, you want to be dealing with reality as directly as possible you know, with, without the interference of your, your concepts, your projections, everything that goes on in your mind, you want to be like right there in the present moment. That's where magic is. And he says it's so personal, it can be excruciating. So equanimity, as we've been talking about, that is considered a level of magic because as we go deeper into ordinary life, that's where we, we practice that. That's our, that's our training ground. And that's when we are able to work with them. We work with our minds when we're working with equanimity. We are training our minds, and he's saying that is that's magic. So, you know, to get back to what you're saying, um, I I think everybody you know added another piece. And and the bottom line is that there it's not formulaic. There's not like one 
thing that you can do every time. But we have to know ourselves and we have to know when it's right for us to say something and when it's right to not say something. It's not always, you know, sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's a timing of when you say something to someone. But I have found as someone who does not, has not spoken up because I was um, (laughs) censored when I was growing up and, um, you know, there were consequences for me to express anything. So um, it's been a lifelong, um, it's, it's taken me years to get to the point where I can just you know, say something to someone who's, like, causing me suffering in a way. So for me, it's scary, but it's really good. But um, there's a lot of things to pay attention to, who I'm speaking to, how I'm saying it, what my timing is, you know, the way in which I'm, how, how aggressively am I coming across. All of those things, like, play into it. It's, it's not about... We're not rejecting or repressing anything that's coming up for us. This is not like a fake thing where we want to appear to be a certain way. This has got to, we've got to make this real for ourselves. And, you know, the way that we make it real for ourselves is, again, you know, it's like going back to the banquet analogy. If you're hurt by someone, you know, that's, that's um, you see that they're suffering where they're coming from, but they're doing something that's hurtful to you. You invite that in and you let that be there. If you are going to get to real equanimity, if you are going to get to true, authentic equanimity, you have to go in through your emotions, through being honest with what's going on for you. Sometimes, if you get into it with somebody, and you know, just whatever's going on, like if there's a if there's some conflict or disagreement, like to be able to stay in relationship with someone, that's really uncommon. That really takes a lot of maturity. We disagree, okay? And sometimes the other person won't do it, and it's like kind of really trying to push you to get like out of control, like, but like. You know, to, to, to even when there's a, a big disagreement about something, to stay in a relationship with that person is um, a part of practice for me. Yeah. When I remember it. <laughs> yeah, it's not not always not always so easy because see, I think that that is, um, I think that's equanimity, which you're describing that you're having difficulty with someone, but you stay in relationship because. You're not so at the effect of um, what repels you, you know, what you want to push away from you, that you're out of relationship with them. So equanimity in that situation would would look exactly like that, would be staying in relationship with someone, even with the conflict, even if you're saying you disagree with them, even if you've had fights with them. You know, that to me is equanimity. Mm-hmm. Or at least working on cultivating it. On, on cultivating it. I would just, I, I think any, any time we make any effort at all, we're just doing it already. You know, maybe it's not, you know, they say, this is, this is the next thing I was going to talk about in the tradition of yoga. They say that the highest yogic state, the highest yoga that there is, is the yoga of equanimity. It's, it's the highest, 
it's in, in, in Hinduism they say that they call in Hinduism it's called ekarasa. Ekarasa means basically one taste. And we, we have we I haven't talked about this yet, but it's it's a, it's something similar to equanimity. And it's like that state is considered a higher state than samadhi. Samadhi is like what you see, you know, you might see like a, a an advanced practitioner or yogi in India who's in or some of the great spiritual masters that are in a state of absorption in the divine. You know, that they live in that state. But but the yoga, the state of equanimity is considered higher than any of the other states. It's considered very high high state. Because when we are reliable in having equanimity, the mind is not at the effect of, of all these fluctuations. Because when we're at the when we're when we're at the effect of the push and pull of what we accept, what we reject, what attracts us, what repels us, our desires, our aversions, what we like, what we don't like, the mind is constantly going from one to the other. And what's missing is sometimes there can be real confusion. We get confused. And when there's confusion, it's harder to perceive what's called in the yogic tradition sat or truth. It's we can't perceive the truth because we're just going back and forth with all of these fluctuations. So when we begin to have equanimity, we have greater clarity and it's just easier to perceive the truth of things just in not some like great ultimate truth, but just the truth in the moment. Because sometimes we get confused. It's like, is it this that's going on? Is that going on? And you know, it, it's like to have clarity. I think it's like I'm beginning to it's beginning to become more and more important to me just to have clarity, you know, in my life, to have clarity on the path, you know, to begin to to train my mind which is where the magic is, you know, to train my mind in such a way where I'm not so, you know, tossed and turned by everything that I can have some degree of clarity. And so when we can do that reliably, in the yoga tradition, they say it's the highest yoga that there is. And um, are you all familiar with Ayurvedic medicine? Have you heard of that? It's really cool. It's the it's the Indian um, system of um, uh, medicine, basically. It's very different than Western medicine. And in the Ayurvedic um, tradition, there are three what are called gunas or tendencies. There's sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic. We all have all three of them. Not, none of them are bad. Or it's not like have one and don't have any. We need all three. But we have them in, in different degrees, different amounts. So the tamasic tendency is about, tamasic is, is kind of um, about uh, sluggishness, dullness, apathy, um, you know, kind of a heaviness. That's, that's what the tamasic tendency is. And you know, in Ayurveda, in Ayurveda, the ideal diet is a vegetarian diet. So they say eat different foods if you want to encourage these these tendencies. So because you know the optimal diet is a vegetarian diet, 
Um, a diet that encourages more of that tamasic tendency is meat. You know, encourages that kind of that heaviness, that slowness. And then there's the rajasic tendency. Rajasic tendency is fire and action and, and passion and movement. And the foods that um, encourage that tendency are caffeine and spicy foods. And then the sattvic tendency is uh, the tendency of balance, steadiness, harmony, which is considered the ideal uh, tendency or guna to have for spiritual practice. So I'm not saying we should all be vegetarians. I'm not saying that all. So the, the, the foods that are associated with the sattvic tendency are fruits and vegetables and grains. <laughs> so, you know, the, the point being is that even our diet can play a part in um, how much equanimity we have, you know, considering our diet. Let's say we would like to have more equanimity when we're driving in traffic, but we've had four cups of coffee, <laughs> you know? And it's like, is that going to encourage us in the direction of equanimity? Or is it going to maybe, you know, um, create a little bit of a, a problem there? Is it going to deter us? So, you know, I mean, I, I, I like caffeine. So it's like, again, I'm not saying we should have one particular diet or the other. It really varies according to the person. The point, though, is that the foods that we eat, even down to the level of diet, can help us to um, cultivate equanimity or maybe detract from it. So just looking at our diet, what foods are we eating? What about meditation? You know, a meditation practice can be really helpful in um, cultivating equanimity because with meditation, hopefully, you develop the ability to just have more space before you react. You pause. You're able to pause more instead of having this like mechanical reactivity to something. You just have a little bit more space to pause. It can be very helpful in cultivating equanimity. And then the other thing is, um, I was talking about Robert Svoboda before, the Ayurvedic doctor and the astrologer. And he's always saying, you know, make sure that your prana or your life force is circulating well in your body. Make sure that your life force is circulating well in your body. So, you know, good flow of life force. And so what does that mean? It means, for one thing, that we want to pay attention to our breath. How are we breathing? Because, you know, I'm a physical therapist, and a lot of people come in with neck pain. And I say, take a deep breath for me. How do you breathe? That's how they breathe. They breathe with their, their neck muscles and their upper ribs and their shoulders, but there's nothing going on in, in the belly area. So even something as simple as paying attention to our breath, making sure that we are breathing from here can help us move along in the direction of having equanimity. It can be simple, simple things. Remember, Chogyam Trungpa says that's where the magic is. The magic is in what? It's being in the trenches, in the trenches of our everyday lives. That's where the magic is. That's where the work is. That's where the, our, our, our training is. That's where we 
you know, fall down and we have to get back up and try again. You know, so it's like we can just pay attention to our breath and make sure we should all be breathing from here and not from here. I can't believe how many people don't know how to breathe. Most people, unless you're a trained singer or martial artist or something like that, but a lot of people do not breathe properly. And even the way we breathe, you know, can help us to have equanimity or, or at least move in that direction. So our breath, our diet, meditation, all of these things can, can all play a part. And when we're getting ready to, you know, if there's somebody that, you know, you want to say something to that's, that's hurt you or you feel like you need to say something to them, you know, you can check in with yourself. How am I breathing? I mean, really, I, I give that as an exercise to some of my patients. It's like they think they're going to be lifting weights. And I say, lie down on your back, put your hands on your diaphragm every single day for five minutes. Like, that's so simple. Exactly. You know, it's simple, but it's, it's really, really essential. So all these, these simple things that we do in everyday lives can help us with our wanting to have, you know, more equanimity in our lives. But remember, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be passionate and that you should be chill about everything. It's not about that at all. There is a time when you are going to be more measured like this yes that is that is related to that but it's 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 much more it's much more than just that so i want to make sure that's clear well thank you so much for coming and for participating i really appreciate that thank you